it's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay, it's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. President Trump's presidency. His first term's ending with action, and his second term's going to start with a bang. Okay, that we can guarantee you. His second term is going to start with a bang. That we can guarantee you. So spoke former White House Counselor Steve Bannon on his podcast January 5th, seeming to foreshadow the horrific events that would take place at the U.S. Capitol the next day. The country, he told his listeners, was about to undergo a constitutional crisis that would make the impeachment of Donald Trump look like a Sunday picnic. Did Bannon know what the MAGA warriors flooding into the Capitol were about to do? Did he encourage them? The January 6th committee subpoenaed him to testify and turn over documents. Bannon refused. But on Friday, Merrick Garland's Justice Department indicted Bannon on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. It was a move that was essential if the January 6th committee's subpoenas were going to have any value at all. But how will Bannon's indictment play out in court? And perhaps just as important, how long will it take to play out? We'll discuss, and then we'll talk to Evan Osnos of the New Yorker about his fascinating new book, Wildland: The Making of America's Fury, that charts how the country got to January 6th in the first place—a story in which Bannon plays a role. All that on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have to say, I was surprised. I thought when the Court of Appeals on Thursday night enjoined the National Archives from turning over Trump's documents so it can hear his executive privilege claims, that would freeze the Justice Department from going after Bannon or anybody else, because Bannon's argument is, I have been instructed by the former president not to turn over or testify on the grounds of executive privilege. Obviously, that did not hold sway for the Justice Department, because just as we were about to tape this podcast, uh, they popped this indictment, making a point that might distinguish Bannon from a lot of other people who have been subpoenaed, like Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark, that Bannon was a private citizen at the time of the run up to January 6th. He was not a government official. So far, the committee has issued 35 subpoenas, and it's a mixed bag. A large number of them were employed by the federal government and in the White House on January 6th, and a large number of them weren't. For example, this week, they issued a bunch of subpoenas for private individuals who worked for the campaign or who were involved in organizing the Stop the Steal rally. The kind of bright line right now that seems to be operating is that if you worked for the government and you're asserting executive privilege, that you might have a layer of protection from the fact that this is going on before the D.C. Circuit right now, and that the D.C. Circuit is going to decide whether or not the former president still has the ability to assert some level of privilege over his communications yeah, with I mean, his it people. Is, 
it is worth pointing out that even though Bannon may not be protected by the privilege because he's a private citizen, there still is this dispute about who owns the privilege or if a former president has the right to assert executive privilege. And that is unresolved. The district court judge just this week said that the incumbent president, the sitting president, trumps, so as it were, the former president. So it may still be, this will play out over time, but it may still be that the Mark Meadows of the world will have to comply or could end up being indicted themselves. Um, yeah. So we'll have to see how that plays it's out. It's hard for me to see when the issue is before the courts how N- not now i'm saying it over time i'm am just saying that there is still the possibility that mark meadows will yeah. will be forced to testify so mark meadows the president's former chief of staff jeffrey clark the uh, former high ranking official at the department of justice have both indicated to the committee in varying levels of emphasis that they're not going to testify they're not going to say anything because of executive privilege once the court decides on this that they don't have anywhere to hang their hat anymore. Yeah, but which court? And this is going to look. I mean, they've yeah. set the Court of Appeals is set November third, thirty for oral arguments. That's before the three judge panel. So this, you know, we're talking sometime December before the in December the three judge panel presumably rules. But then we appeal on bonk to the full Court of Appeals, and only then does it go to the Supreme Court. So we're talking a matter of months. And look, Bannon's argument is still going to be in court on this, uh, the criminal indictment. Hey, the, uh, you know, I was instructed by the former president. You are you, the Justice Department, are saying as a former official, I don't count. The president does not have any right to a, a privileged conversation with the likes of me. But let's remember, that's never been litigated either. We have there's no Supreme Court ruling that says executive privilege applies only to current officials, not to former officials. You know, I think it's a it's a strong argument. The Supreme Court also hasn't ruled that the sky is blue, but you know, you don't you don't have to have a Supreme Court decision on everything for it to be pretty clear that executive privilege doesn't apply to private private individuals. If it did, then essentially the president gets to talk to absolutely everyone and anyone and they can never be questioned. So if Joe Biden calls you up Victoria tomorrow and says I need your advice on how to handle this matter, you know, you being experienced lawyer that you are, are you going to say, well, Mr. President, you know, I can't give you any privileged confidential advice and if I get test if I get hauled before Congress, I'm going to have to tell him everything you and I spoke about. Well, if he called me and hired me as his lawyer, I could claim attorney-client privilege, okay? <laughs> right. yeah. But no, he just wants your wisdom. Might just like, yeah, yeah. Well, then yeah. I then I would say to him, I can, you know, like, I, I, obviously I'll talk to you, but you should know whatever we say is not going to be protected by executive yeah. privilege. You know, it's, it is. But let's, let's go back to the timing on this, because I think that's actually kind of one of the equally interesting things, which is, I know it, it seems like it's dragging on to you, but, you know, from the perspective of a court, a uh, this having been decided or being about to be decided after two weeks is lightning speed. That is faster than courts operate under most circumstances. There's a distinct possibility that it could go to that the appeals court, the D.C. Circuit could decide this, as you say, by December, and it could be before the Supreme Court in January. Let's go to the criminal side here and and let's talk about Bannon for a second and how this plays out. Because as of this recording, late Friday afternoon, no arraignment has been set. 
Presumably, he'll have to surrender himself, and there will be an arraignment. I'm assuming he will plead not guilty. <laughs> Unless he wants to go to jail and, and just be a martyr here, and I wouldn't put that past Bannon. But then they'll set a trial date. Yeah. What happens to Bannon? Will they uh, uh, he'll, well, he'll be released some, on his... I've got some news on that front. All and right. This case has been assigned to Judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee who previously clerked for Clarence Thomas. So <laughs> I'd say he's lucked out in that regard. <laughs> and that's probably not the judge that the Justice Department or the January 6th committee wanted to be hearing his case. But I would suggest that that is going that this judge will be at least give some deference to Bannon's executive privilege argument, current official or not, or former official. I mean, I have to say, first of all, that like from the de- perspective of the Department of Justice, while that that might not be the worst judge in the world for them to have drawn, because you know, they can't be accused of going in front of a Democratic judge who will do whatever they want. It actually gives them a little bit if if Bannon is ultimately convicted, it gives them a lot more, you know, kind of protection. Well, do you think this judge will, uh, as a former Thomas clerk, will want to hear from the other former Thomas clerk, John Eastman, who's also (laughs) been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee and wrote the playbook for the insurrection? I, so, you you know, I, I have a limited things that I can say about John Eastman, given my uh, given my yeah. role in uh, in in helping or consulting with the people who filed a, a bar right. complaint against him. But uh, right. I think this judge is it, it there is going to be a kind of a fulsome briefing on this on this issue and the judge right. will will absolutely hear. And it. this is a uh, criminal indictment. Uh, I guess the question I have is in the civil context, it's often about pressuring people to actually comply with the subpoena. But that's not really what this is, right? Or, I mean, there isn't going to be a sort of a settlement where Bannon says, okay, okay, you got me, now been charged with with a felony, right? So so he's going to face trial, and if he's convicted, he's going to do time? What's going to happen here? I think it's up to a year in jail. It's it's a misdemeanor, but it's up to a year in jail. We'll see. This... The uh, former Thomas clerk, Trump appointee, will be the one who would sentence him, presumably, if he is convicted. But we'll see. But I think this is going to be very much intertwined with the court's handling of the Trump executive privilege claims. And there's a wrinkle there that I'd like to point out, which is one of the three judges on the three-judge panel is Katanji Brown-Jackson, who, if uh, you've been listening closely to this podcast over the, you know, in recent months, you know, is the odds-on favorite to be the next Supreme Court nominee, the first Supreme Court nominee for Joe Biden, next year, presuming that Stephen Breyer resigns. So that's going to put the spotlight on how she handles this case. She's one of three judges. She did write the opinion on the McGahn case, which was a big win for the House, you know, ordering that Bannon indeed had to testify about his conversations with Trump about the Mueller investigation. Uh, But this one coming so close to when there is very likely to be a confirmation hearing, I think, may cause her to um, handle this very carefully. We'll see if she writes the opinion. 
but I don't think she's going to want to be a part of an opinion that could get overturned in part by the Supreme Court. So the D.C. Circuit handles a lot of hot cases pretty regularly, and she's already handled a lot of hot cases as a district court judge. I feel like, you know, she, you know, she's not the kind of person who's going to trim her sails out of fear of like being kind of terribly or harshly cross-examined in a confirmation hearing or or, you know, fear how, of how the Supreme Court might handle her opinion. You know, I, I mean, obviously, she'll she'll be meticulous about it, but I just right. it just doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that is going to push her into into a shell or. No, or no, maybe. I, I think to me, yeah. the, the question is, is the House going to win wholesale here and say they get everything and that there is no executive privilege or as seems somewhat more likely to me, especially after the Supreme Court gets through, that there could be some kind of split the difference where you have to make a claim about particular documents, which if that's where this ends up, could really slow. But I don't get that. Down. I don't get that. What do you I mean, mean? Victoria? I mean, well, because, you know, if, you know? The, if the novel issue here, if, if the issue is who owns the privilege and whether the president, the, the sitting president of the United States you know, it's the sitting president's privilege no, to claim no, no, and no, not a Supreme, former president. I'm sorry, William Brennan in the su- only Supreme Court case that's relevant to this, which involved Nixon, it wasn't Nixon versus the USA, it was a later one about his presidential papers, said that former presidents do have claims of executive privilege. There's a difference. In that case, yeah. the sitting president did not weigh in. In this case, the sitting president has taken a very firm position. Right. But, you know, I mean, the the courts are to look at, you know, is executive privilege, you know, uh, important for all future presidents? That's the the lens through which the Supreme Court has to look at this. I mean, Mike, you're you're right that the courts and the Supreme Court love every opportunity to finally parse every possible request for information and documents. And if they can kind of find a split the baby way of dealing with it, I, I wouldn't put it past the, you know, I wouldn't put it out of the question. Like you could see a court saying that some documents like visitor logs and, uh, you know, kind of stand the standard information flow and paper flow across the president's desk is, you know, less concerning than a dialogue that the president might have had with the secretary of defense. You know, so you you could see a court sort of like creating a great gradations where they would right. allow kind of almost document by document review of whether or not it gets turned over. But my point is a but document by document review takes time, re- takes yeah. time. And, you're, you know, the important thing to remember, even though the courts may be handling this quickly, is there's a ticking clock here, which is that the committee has got to get its work all its work done, including public hearings, which we haven't even begun to talk about. There was one back in the summer with the three police officers. But, you know, we haven't even begun. You know, we haven't seen, you know, uh, Meadows or Eastman or anybody testifying in public, which is, you know, where they want to end up. And, you know, they've got to do it all next year. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. And on the other hand, the 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 this may give the committees a little bit of wind in their sails because there are people out there who, even though they might, like Meadows, want to assert the privilege um, or have the privilege asserted on their behalf by President Trump, there are other people who just don't want to be indicted. Yeah. You know, 
And yeah, so yeah. there is a little if bit of an incentive lawyer, here. You may not want to be. If you're a that. lawyer, for example. Yes. Right, right. Exactly. So we'll All see. Right. Well, anyway, enough of this. We've got a great guest uh, for this episode. Evan Osnos of The New Yorker magazine, uh, great writer, great reporter, and has a really wild and enlightening book out called Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. So let's get to it. We now have with us Evan Osnos of The New Yorker and author of the new book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. Evan, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's nice to be back with you. So congrats on the book. It's really a, a fantastic read. And what I love is the way you connect dots. And from your hometown in Greenwich to those two places you later work, Clarksburg and Chicago. But let's start out with Greenwich. Yeah. You know, I, I really, uh, everybody loves to read about rich people and their foibles. <laughs> and uh, you do a very good job of sort of showing the transformation in this wealthy suburb where you grew up. Talk about what that transformation was like and what the old Greenwich was and what Greenwich became. Yeah, it's and curiously enough, it's a piece of the American story that I think like you, I, I sort of have always wanted to understand more about and couldn't find anybody who had written it. And I kind of felt like, I guess I should just try to write it, which is to say, this is a place I was extremely fortunate to grow up. You know, I mean, being a kid in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is after all a suburb of New York City is like, I think, as I put it in, in the book, it's sort of like winning the cosmic lottery because you have everything that you can want. I mean, the, some of the best public schools in the country, all of the kinds of things that launched me. And, you know, I, I think that it's also easy to overlook. I think it's easy for people from the outside to look at it and say, well, it's probably always been at the top, the sort of narrowest slice of American economic success. And the truth is that it has always been wealthy, but that has changed and it's changed in a really important way that's easy to overlook from the outside, which is to say that when I was a kid and before that, you know, it was a place that had some degree of economic variation within its ranks. I mean, there were doctors and lawyers and school teachers and plumbers. And in my case, a book publisher and a human rights advocate. Those were my parents. And, you know, I was I watched it kind of transform. And here's one interesting way to frame it, which is that in 1981, the biggest business person in America was a guy named Reg Jones who lived in Greenwich. He was the chairman and CEO of General Electric. And he was the biggest thing around. He was the, you know, the chair of the business roundtable. He advised presidents and so on. And Reg Jones was kind of hostile to conspicuous consumption. His daughter at one point told me that, you know, he used to really be appalled by uh, what he thought of as people who made money just by moving money around. He couldn't quite understand that. And, you know, at the peak <laughs> of his power, Greenwich, Greenwich became. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, but it sort of became the center of the financialization of America. And that to me was very interesting because it went from a place just in sheer numerical terms that was making money by 
generating things by opening factories and employing people and building things to, and obviously I'm speaking in broad terms about anything, but it went to, it became something where money was being built on wealth. It was wealth built on wealth. And that's a transformation because it means that it's just driving capital deeper into the hands of people who already have it. And that's something that's happened over the course of just four years. Yeah. And also reflected in the change in our politics from you have a mini profile of Prescott Bush, the right. grandfather and father of presidents who, you know, was sort of the old school, moderate Republican uh, golfing partner of Dwight Eisenhower, who believed in that government and people of his good fortune had an obligation to help those less fortunate. And with this sort of, you know, uh, financialization of your hometown, becoming the hedge fund capital of the country, or as one pundit said, the, you know, gateway to white collar crime, came this new breed of libertarian politics, which was very different than Prescott Bush's. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key kind of, I think, dynamic was that as the place entered a new stratosphere of wealth, you saw this very distinct shift in the political character that it went from having this self-identity as being this center of moderate and of sort of moderate and moderating Republican. I mean, that was the interesting thing. Prescott Bush, it's not an abstract example. I mean, he was literally from town. He was the head of the local town council for a long time. He, you know, was a senator from Connecticut and his linear descendants in political terms, the people who ended up running the Republican town committee over the course of the last five or six years are people who decided early on in the Trump candidacy in a kind of critical moment. It's sort of a, one of these bellwether moments. They decided not to support Jeb Bush, the uh, you know who was after all almost a kind of son of Greenwich, and they actually threw their lot in with Donald Trump. And that moment was the thing that caught my attention when I started to say, how did this place that once saw itself as the bedrock of moderate republicanism decide that Donald Trump was the future? That's the story I had to try to figure out. So, Evan, one of the things that that's so compelling about the book and how you tell this story is that you center it in three places in America that where you had formative experiences. So Greenwich, where you grew up, yeah. Clarksburg, uh, West Virginia, where you got your first real job uh, working for a newspaper, and then Chicago, where you were a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's kind of like a kaleidoscope effect. You know, you turn mm -hmm. the kaleidoscope, you're seeing a different part of America. But to Mike's point before, there are all these fascinating connections between these these places. And so I want to kind of pick up on that. And in each one of these places, you have kind of a main character who's representative of a lot of the themes that you write about. So starting with Greenwich, you write about a, uh, a doctor. He wasn't a doctor for a very long time named uh, Chip Scourun. And he's a kind of a morality. His life is a kind of a morality tale for a lot of the problems in this country. So tell us about Chip Scourin, and then I want to move to, uh, to Chicago. So Chip Scourin is this up-and-coming doctor, and he gets all the best training. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, if you're losing interest in medicine, you should think about Wall Street. Uh, because this was right at the moment that this new world was opening up in which hedge funds and private equity funds were beginning to hire doctors to help them pick stocks. And he's so new to this that he actually literally goes to the bookstore and buys a book called Getting Started in Hedge Funds 
which I bought by the way. So I'm, I'm now perfectly ready to get into the business. But what's fascinating is he then over the course of just a few years makes a fortune. He made tens of millions of dollars over the course of the next several years. And it goes from one fund to the next, to the next. And pretty soon he finds himself handing envelopes of cash to a doctor in a bar, a researcher to basically buy inside tips on a drug trial so that he can beat the market. And that of course, you know, insider trading, it was the beginning of his unraveling. He ends up getting arrested. And what's fascinating, he talked to me, he was, he's a very generous teller of his own story. And it's frankly, you know, as you can tell a, a sort of tough story to talk about, but he's talked to me enough where I could try to get inside of his head about how did he cross this line between legal and illegal life, even at the very top of the American pyramid. How does that happen? And I found it really revealing because it was not unique. I mean, it's worth my mentioning here that in Greenwich, in, in on the road where I grew up, I mean, the street is called Round Hill Road. And so many people were getting involved in criminal cases. There were so many people getting either arrested or sort of wrapped up in financial shenanigans that it was nicknamed Rogues Hill Road. And I wanted to understand how that happened. How did Rogues and Hill Road come And there was a support group for white collar criminals you talk about in Greenwich, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was so many folks, they started finding each other and they would meet and uh, talk about how do you come back after white collar crime. So take us now to Chicago and to a young man that you met uh, named Maurice Clark. How did you meet him? What does he represent in your story? And I will get to this. I think there's a kind of a fascinating connection between what was happening in Greenwich mm. and what happened in his life. Yeah. Yeah. He's an extraordinary person. And as journalists sometimes do, you, you never know who you're going to meet or how, and it's going to shape the whole course of a project. In this case, I was, on, I was standing on the street in Chicago in early 2016. I was working on a piece for The New Yorker, and I'm writing about one of those little shrines on the sidewalk where somebody had been killed. And a guy comes up to a me. A lot of those in Chicago. There are probably, a lot yeah. of them in Chicago. Exactly. And it became one of the things that sort of drove my reporting there was trying to understand that. And this guy came up to me as I'm standing there and he says, who are you with? And I said, I'm with the New Yorker magazine. And he said, is that the one with the cartoons? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I used to Standard read that in question, but yes, way. exactly. <laughs> right. Well, you get it on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and evidently on the South Side of Chicago. Uh, yeah. But he, what, what he said next really interested me. He said, well, I used to read it in prison. He said, I was the only one who did. And I thought I, I want to understand a little more about this person. And his name is Maurice Clark and just a fascinating guy. I mean, he, we're about the same age. We had both had kids around the same time. And I just couldn't help but sort of look into his life and see this sense of these kinds of two very non-intersecting and but parallel American experiences. And he said, if you really want to understand why this person, whose name was Philip Dupree, why he got killed, I'll take you around the neighborhood and I will show you what happened. And I said, okay. And he got in the car and I said, so why, why did you go to prison? And he said, it was attempted murder. And I was 19. And he spent a decade in prison and came out. And I came over the course of the next five years, really. I mean, I talked to Maurice so many times. I, you know, I don't, I don't know how many times we ended up sort of doing interviews, but 
his life just opened up as a way of understanding not just violence in Chicago, but all of the ways in which the smallest policy choices, the smallest little decisions that we make about what we spend on, how we, how we finance or don't finance things in communities just shapes the trajectory of people's lives in such profound ways. And, you know, if you'll bear it, can I give you one other little detail about his life that I think is important, which is that Reese Clark, when he was a kid, was very good at math. And he was a very promising student. And he, he was kind of, he'd gone to this other neighborhood for school. And then when he got to eighth grade, there's this point in the Chicago public school system at which they no longer will pay for a bus, for a school bus. You have to take the public bus in 1981. This was the rule. And to take the public bus, his parents had to pay for it. And they didn't have the money to pay for the public bus. So instead of going to this good school that was one neighborhood away on the public bus, they said, you're going to go to the neighborhood school. And the neighborhood school is kind of infamous. It's a place called Fenger High School. Very violent. And unfortunately, not a place that paid much attention to how people were doing in math. And as Reese Clark said to me, kind of with a sort of wry self-awareness, he said, and so began my life of crime. And that is the truth. It was like this fork in the road. And I just often returned so many times to what was the, why wasn't there a must, why wasn't there a program to pay for bus fare for the ninth graders instead of just the eighth graders? Well, one just quick follow up on this, which is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, was it Reese, Reese's mother who bought the house yeah. in Chicago? Because this is the, to Mike's point about connecting the dots, the sort right. of intersection between, you know, the kind of financial shenanigans that were happening in places like, Greenwich and the suffering of people in Chicago, she buys a house and not too long after that, they get a visit from Countrywide Financial Corporation. Two guys, I mean, literally going door to door, walked up to the front door of the house and said, we've got good news for you. We can give you a mortgage that you didn't think you could ever afford. And you're going to be able to fix up your house and rent it for more money and you know, the future is yours. And you can kind of, all of us can now look at that. All you have to say is countrywide. And we all know where this was going. It ended up being a, a mortgage they could never afford. Their monthly payments went from 900 bucks a month to 1900 bucks a month, spiked almost overnight. They ended up losing their house. And, you know, I, I am so glad to that, you know, we got into this conversation by talking about connecting the dots, because that is actually the entire point of this book was for me to say, how do these separate dramas connect? And in this case, it was just extraordinary to me that when I went to go looking for the people and the institutions and the ideas that created the kind of toxic mortgages and ultimately the financial crisis that devastated so many communities in this country, I found myself back at the doorstep of my own hometown in Greenwich, Connecticut, because some of the leaders of the most important players of the most important banks, some of the individuals who actually envisioned these kinds of mortgages and saw that this was a profit-making opportunity lived in Greenwich. And, you know, this was not abstract. And in a way, the connecting of the dots became almost fanatical in my sort of reporting process. I was, I wanted to be able to tie individual households in one place of the country to individual households in another place in the country through ideas and financial instruments and decisions and norms. And that was the coin of the round. That's what I was trying to do. I want to step back for a second because we've talked really about some individuals and some cities, but your book is really about 
you know, kind of the rising fury in America. It's not just about three cities or three individuals. You call the book Wildland. T mm. Tell us quickly why that is. You, I, I mean, I don't tend to think of Greenwich or um, mm -hmm. or Chicago or even, you know, parts of West Virginia as being Wildland. Why, why is that the title? What does it mean? Yeah, it's a word actually that comes out of firefighting. And I came upon it. It means in the firefighting world, it's the land that bursts into flame during a wildfire because it is so desiccated, dried out, full of fuel, kind of waiting to burn. And interested, what interested me about it was it's not a place, it's a condition. It's a state of being. It's a, it's a, a land that is so, in a sense, neglected in plain sight that all it takes is any kind of spark, any moment to set it ablaze. And to me, that's how American politics felt when I came back to this country after a decade away. In addition to telling the story of these people in these three cities and the level of uh, kind of financial, you know, kind of engineering that's gone on right. to create these, you know, conditions in the United States, you also talk, I think, about two other kind of parallel stories that are going on. One of which does indeed kind of begin in Connecticut with a, a man named Lee Hanley mm. um, or one of the characters of Lee Hanley who who kind of helps create what you describe as the growing fear business in America. You mentioned a, a, a polls that he did where he showed a level of discontent in this country that was beyond anything measurable. And then parallel to that is a radical change in the news business, in, in yeah. the way America used to talk to itself. I mean, you describe it as the, the way America used to talk to itself, which is pick up any newspaper and it's America talking to itself. Mm. And and I'm sort of curious how those worked in tandem and created the kind of wildland conditions that you discuss in the book. Yeah, it's that's another point of connection, in a sense, because Lee Hanley is somebody whose name doesn't really mean much to most people because he was very much behind the scenes. But he was... One of the people who he was a very prosperous heir to a fortune in Greenwich. And, you know, in a way, he would have, could have sort of naturally been the moderate Republican type, sort of Prescott Bush like, you know, went to, got his Yale education and somebody, you know, described him as a man who, you know, wore sort of salmon colored slacks and went between Palm Beach and Greenwich. And you, there was a way in which that kind of figure used his wealth in American politics for a long time. And the way that changed. And one of the ways that changed was that Lee Hanley became kind of intoxicated by the idea that he could produce these figures on the farther right end of the Republican Party began to support people like Ted Cruz and Scott Walker. And eventually it led to more and more fringe candidates. And then had this, he became involved with, with the Mercer family and with uh, who after all was one of the primary backers of Steve Bannon and Breitbart. He became, started working with Bannon, started working ultimately with this project that's kind of a sort of little footnote of history, but had huge impact, which was called the Candidate Smith Project, which was the idea of finding a candidate, a kind of Mr. Smith type from outside Washington, who might be able to galvanize all this anxiety in American life. And they ultimately ended up settling on Donald Trump. And they together decided to begin to back him. And that's one of those pieces of the prehistory of the Trump era that needed to be described. And you know, what's fascinating to me is that here it is, the money is coming from Greenwich and from Palm Beach, but ultimately they needed a public 
they needed a body of voters. And for that, they were aided by the fact that the world of information was changing so rapidly that you could essentially get your message out there much faster. And if your message was be afraid of immigrants, be afraid of people coming to take your money, be afraid of whatever, then there were ways to do that. And one of the reasons why that was happening was because newspapers were dying and people were spending much more of their time kind of in this national political world. In a sense, I came to think of it almost like people were uploading their political lives to the cloud. You would be in your house, but you were participating in this kind of political conversation that had almost nothing to do with your community. It had to do with these these kind of national ideas. And there were just some amazing little indicators of that. I mean, the sheer number of newspaper jobs that were vanishing is, is by now something that people in our world, I think, know. But one thing we don't always fully appreciate is that just the, the way in which we were communicating with, whether, with each other was, was being transformed. I mean, the average soundbite, as I mentioned in the book, went from being 62 seconds long half a century ago to being eight seconds on average today. So there was just this kind of skittering attention in which we were moving from one thing to the next. And as that happened, that plays into the fear economy because it makes it much easier to give people just little tiny tidbits of information. And as we all know, a tidbit of information can often be much more terrifying than actually understanding something in three dimensions. Let's uh, talk about another place in your stations of the cross here, Clarksburg, West Virginia, because it kind of um, go your chapters there are quite fascinating because they go to what I think is a fundamental paradox here. You have you spend time as a newspaper reporter in, in Clarksburg. This is a state that is one of the poorest in the country that, you know, was highly dependent on a coal industry that has been suffering and has, um, you know, these hedge funds moved in and um, cut back benefits for the miners and all sorts of environmental degradation, a, a state that was really suffering from the kinds of economic changes you're describing. And yet this is mm. precisely the time it is going from a primarily democratic state to a solidly Republican state, which, you know, seems a little explain you mm -hmm. know, how yeah. we get a, a state that has suffered from what's going on becoming such a robust red MAGA state. In some ways, it comes down to the politics of loss. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean. I mean, I moved to Clarksburg, West Virginia, uh, right out of school. And, you know, it was 1999. And I show up in this place. And what's fascinating about it, it's a small city in the northern part of the state. It's got 16,000 people. And what you immediately sense about it is it had this tremendous sense of ambition about it. I mean, it looked physically there had there were these tall buildings, sort of, you know, eight and nine story buildings in the middle of this little downtown that had been built at the beginning of the 20th century when they really had this ambition to be a major place. You know, they had some of the first telephones in the state of West Virginia. And I mean, even the little newspaper where I was working, pump, we put out two full newspapers a day, not just editions, but like full newspapers called the, it was the Clarksburg Exponent and the Clarksburg Telegram. And there were these banners that hung around town that even when I got there still said Clarksburg voted the all-American city of 1956. So there was this way in which it had this 
period of, of success in its history, almost like the muscle memory of being a thriving place, but that was leaching away quite actively. I mean, the coal economy was dying. It was actually the glass factories that had been the big local employer. Those were disappearing. But what I came to realize was that it, it matters tremendously how things die. It's not just that industries go away. It's what happens as they're in the tailspin. That has a huge effect in our politics. And what happened was that people in town became very aware of the degree to which sort of the, the decline of their, not just their businesses, but their culture, their sense of identity and well-being, and all these things were that as that was happening there, they knew there were people sort of over the economic horizon in places like Greenwich. They didn't know exactly where, who were kind of riding the collapse. And they, they kind of felt that sense of something was being, they were sort of, something was being actively taken from them. And into that moment drops Donald Trump. And I think, you know, first it was actually Carl Rove who sensed this opportunity. I mean, I describe in the book that it was just an amazing scene in American history that deserves to be recognized, which was 1999-2000. Carl Rove looked at West Virginia and he said, this place should be red because it had voted for Democrats all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt. And the reason being, you know, famously voted for Kennedy in 1960. Basically, you know, Roosevelt had gone up into the mountains, had given people... Uh, relief during the Great Depression. And, and West Virginia had been Democratic ever since. Carl Rove said, I can turn it. And the way that he opened half a dozen offices around the state, and they actually literally hired some coal miners to go out and campaign for George W. Bush wearing their coal mining helmets. And Al Gore, you remember, of course, was America's leading environmentalist. And so at the time, they were able to exploit that moment. And West Virginia ended up voting for George W. Bush in the 2000 election. And it's worth pointing out, I have to say, if if Gore had actually won West Virginia, he would have won the 2000 election without well, that, Florida. You well, know? that brings up I mean, that brings up a, a question that I was thinking about as you were talking, which is, I mean, to what extent do Democrats, does the Democratic Party and Democratic presidents bear responsibility for not managing this post-industrial decline, being more empathetic about the, the radical changes in, in the economy that were going on. I mean, it seems to me that for a long time, we talk about the urgency, the existential urgency of climate change, which of course exists, is real, right. but what do we do about the people who are gonna be left behind? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a hugely important fact. I mean, I will, you know, there is a moment in the 2016 election, a kind of fateful moment when Hillary Clinton was talking about West Virginia and coal mining. She went down to West Virginia. She was sitting, you know, Joe Manchin had kind of brought her in and, and she said something that the full sentence was fine. What she said was, you know, we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of work and we're going to put them to work again in the new economy with new energy businesses. But of course, that's not what was playing endlessly on attack ads after that. The, you know, all that anybody heard for months afterwards, we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of work. And that, you know, she has written about is probably, she says, her biggest regret from the 2016 campaign, kind of a fascinating moment. The reason why it became so electric was because it satisfied what people already assumed about the Democratic Party. And to understand that, I, I just, I remember the most interesting thing I think I came upon in the reporting for this book, which I didn't really put in in, in quite this clear form. And I think it's worth stating clearly is that in 1960, Jack Kennedy came to Clarksburg, West Virginia, and asked people to vote for them. And not only Jack Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy came, and Bobby Kennedy came, and Teddy Kennedy came. Lyndon Johnson came, Hubert Humphrey came to Clarksburg, West Virginia. And in fact, 
Kennedy went on television for a half an hour and answered questions from people there. And I talked to the folks at the Historical Society. And I said, you know, would you figure out for me, they've helped me with this project in various ways over the years. And I said, would you figure out who are the other presidential candidates who have come since 1960? And they went off, they said, sure. And they looked and they came back and they said, well, we can't find any, except maybe it seems that Jesse Jackson may have come once in 1988. So there was a, de a degree to which Clarksburg fell off the political map for the Democratic Party. And this is not an indictment of the Democratic Party. I mean, look, the reality was there were all kinds of reasons why it fell off the map, partly because unions were, were becoming much less powerful and important. But the sheer fact of it was they did stop paying attention to a place like Clarksburg in quite the way that they could have. And I think there is somewhat of a, a belated recognition that that was part of the part of the ingredients that Trump exploited in order to win. Well, in light of that, let's talk about uh, the guy who was the subject of your last book, Joe Biden, <laughs> um, and how he's been doing to address these fault lines in our politics. Clearly, his uh, since we last had you on when that book came out, when he was riding pretty high, right. uh, poll numbers were up. He had just passed the economic stimulus thing to where we are today, where he's like, uh, you know, barely over 40 percent in some polls. And yeah. uh, there seems to be some, you know, disquiet uh, <laughs> populace. Yeah, I would his, say that my keen uh, instruments are picking that up as well. I'm noticing <laughs> yeah. that. So, yeah, what, you know, give us your take on, um, you know, how Biden's been doing and why he's been sinking as much as he has. Well, I think there's a few pieces of it. I mean, number one is that I think there was a turning point around the withdrawal from Afghanistan when it became, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, it became this moment. The images were so appalling, frankly, to Americans. They just felt so at odds with what we imagined ourselves to be. And look, reality was that he was doing something that the overwhelming number of Americans wanted, which was to get out of the wars that had been grinding on for 20 years. But I think seeing the way that it was conducted, the chaos that, that accompanied it, put him on his heels and he was slow to absorb it. And he initially was kind of a little bit dismissive of the idea that it wasn't going well. He finally kind of got to it a few days late. And at that point, they had to try to, they were sort of, it was an uphill fight ever since, because that conveyed the sense that these guys who had been presented and presenting themselves as the voice of competence, the ones who had experience in foreign affairs, the ones who could conduct legislative maneuvering, then, then it started to feel as if, well, not, if that's not working, then all this other stuff doesn't look good. And COVID, of course, was coming back. You had the, you had the Delta surge and so on. But I think what's actually at below this, what's kind of running beneath this on a deeper level is that, you know, here we are now 10 months or so after inauguration. And this is a guy who came out and said, my goal is going to be on inauguration day. He sort of, you know, said, this is literally my life's work is to try to repair the divisions in this country. And the fact is, that is not a project that any president can achieve in any simple way. It's simply not. It is as this, I mean, what, this is what Wildland is all about, that this is a, a fracturing of the political landscape that is so deep and so fundamental. It kind of reaches down into the core of our kind of political earth that it's not the kind of thing that can be repaired. And I think there has been this 
growing disenchantment on the left and in the middle of the party, and of course on the right, about the reality of how deep the divisions are. But I will say, add one other thing, which I think we don't talk enough about when we talk about Biden in you know the late 2021 period, which is that this can actually change. I don't believe that this is sort of, you know, the goose is cooked, this is it, the presidency is over. I, you know, I tend to think we get a little efficient about those kinds of conclusions when we talk about this stuff on TV and so on. What really is, this is, you know, you're seeing the work of legislation being hashed out in very public, very kind of ugly fashion. But that's what it is. It's legislation. Well, and if yeah. he gets both of these things, he's going to look like well, a lot more capable. And of course, uh, let me just one just very quick. Of course, the person who kind of holds the key to Biden's political rehabilitation is someone else that you wrote about in your book, uh, mm -hmm. the last Democrat standing <laughs> in West Virginia. So what's your take on Joe Manchin? What is he up to? Yeah, well, I do have to point out it's, you know, I wrote a I wrote a uh, I wrote about him in my book. I've sort of interviewed him over the years and then I did a profile of him in The New Yorker this right. year. So I, I am sort of developing my my niche is basically Catholic guys <laughs> named Joe in their 70s. And that's all I write about. But works for now. Yeah, yeah. it's a business. It's a business. Yeah. You know, Manchin is this very curious partner and bet noir for Joe Biden because they are, after all, I mean, joking aside, they they have a lot in common. I mean, their political sensibilities are so kind of, I mean, people call it the Joe-mance. But I remember once being in Manchin's office earlier this year, and he was telling the story about how Biden had called him up and said, hey, when, when are you going to get me out on that boat? You know, he lives, Manchin sort of famously lives on a houseboat in Washington. Called the almost heaven. Yes. A super spreader boat, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that boat, I mean, it's, I've, I've, I've often thought that, you know, um, who would have thought that the nexus of power in Washington would be a slightly sort of threadbare houseboat uh, docked <laughs> in the Anacostia. But, you know, there is a, um, the reason, I mean, Manchin is in this position of very sort of public power, but I think it's worth pointing out that, there are others actually drafting behind him within the party that we, we don't often talk that much about. You know, he and cinema are the ones who are publicly saying we won't accept this. We won't accept that. But in fact, there are, you know, and all of us would have our estimates for how many, but a half a dozen other Democratic right. senators probably who would who are sort of letting them do the blocking and, and tackling. And, and that's a reflection of the fact that the party itself is actually this very broad and somewhat you know, incoherent. That sounds pejorative, but I don't mean it as such. Really more to just a very broad range of ideas about what the Democratic Party should be and what it can reasonably achieve. I don't consider that to be a diabolical problem. I consider that to be actually the nature of how legislating works. A lot of this used to be done more privately. It's now being done in this kind of very public way. But, you know, Biden was always presiding over something of a fiction, which is to say a unified Democratic Party. That didn't well, it, really exist. It's that old, well, Roger's saying, right, I don't belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Um, <laughs> right. and, uh, so, but to, to go back to your point about, or to, to the question of, uh, you know, Biden's tanking approval ratings and the theme of your book. I, I wonder one of the things I, I, after I finished reading the book, I thought about was whether or not America was essentially ungovernable at this mm -hmm. point. You know, you say 
that America is a wildland waiting for the match to be struck. And I wonder, has the match already been struck? You know, January 6th, I think to many people and the assault on the Capitol was kind of, I, was was proof that the, the match had been struck and that there's kind of, that we're now in an era of increasing conflict and polarization that's so deep that no president is ever, not ever, but you know, like in the kind of middle term is ever going to be able to achieve big things? I think we are in the, in the depth of a, of a particular metamorphosis as, as a country. I mean, that sounds a little bit pompous, but what I mean by it is that we are kind of in this really dramatic transition from essentially a white dominated country. And it was really white male dominated country for 200 and some odd years to what will be the future of this country, which is much more diverse, which is has much greater justice and equity for people who have been denied it for a long time. And that period is not something that's like we pass some threshold and everything, all of a sudden we accommodate to it. No, it's this decade long period of tremendous conflict. I mean, I had this fascinating interview that ended up being just a little just a one sort of one page thing in the book that turns out for me to be something I return to a lot. It was, is that I, in the very early days of the Trump phenomenon, I was interviewing a guy who had been, he was a, you know, a great sociologist uh, of the far right and particularly of, of white nationalist organizations. And I called him up because Trump was getting all this support from white nationalists. And I said, you know, what's going on? And he, and he's a guy out in, in St. Louis uh, named Leonard Zeskin. And he said, you know, he's a MacArthur genius in the nineties. He'd sort of like, he was kind of as visionary. And he said, well, you know, curiously enough, I wrote a, I wrote something and put it in a time capsule. We had one of these time capsules in town at the millennium. And in the time capsule, I wrote that in the early decades of the 20th, 21st century, the United States will convulse around issues of race and of identity and of class, because it will essentially be a process of the white majority coming to terms with what it's losing. And he said, and it will continue and it will peak around 2050 when we go from being majority to being, uh, to being the minority. And he said, and I said, so he said, it's happening faster than I thought. And I've often thought that he, he actually was onto a big truth. And I'm sort of, you know, as a political writer, I guess I'm kind of settling into the reality that whether we call it Trumpism or we call it something else, that that politics of loss and the raging against that is going to be a fact of our lives for more than a decade to come. And I, I say that with sadness, you know? Yeah. Well, since um, Victoria quoted um, Will Rogers, I'll quote you quoting somebody else from the same era. <laughs> Great quote from the book. This is H.L. Mencken. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Oh, man. I mean, that is if that's not today, I don't know what is. I've been working on a piece for The New Yorker, which will come out soon, that has had me listening to a lot of conservative radio. And I will tell you, you know, the United States right now has refined the technology of, of scaring the bejesus out of people. That's the fact, you know, and we do it hour after hour, day after day. And as long as that's the case, you know, our politics is in a state of, of kind of high agitation. 
There's well, a that, col- uh, hold on. I just want to ask one last. Right, sorry. Yeah, I just want to ask. Just <laughs> you want to come? Where's the hope? I was going to read the Galbraith quote, by the way. No, I mean, one of the themes in your book is this kind of tension in our history between kind of individualism and you know this you know reaching for the common good. And I guess the question I have is, you know, I don't think any of us should be you know, should be waiting for a, you know, white knight president to come along and fix things. I guess the question is about collective responsibility yeah. to change things. And and um, how do you think about that? Yeah, that is actually, I mean, all kidding aside, that is actually where I see the hopeful prospects here, which is to say that this is not a solution that can be fixed by a single leader. That is the reality. And, you know, part of Joe Biden's agony is that he is kind of rhetorically committed to repairing our divisions, but he utterly is, does not have the instruments to do it. Nobody does. That has to come from all of us. That has to come from a recognition of how we organize our economy, the, the, the sheer empathy we have for people in other situations who don't look like us, uh, the ability to acknowledge suffering. And the reason why I find this encouraging is actually we are living in a period in which as painful and as kind of furious as this is, it's actually also a time in which we are much more openly, actively aware of the depth of our problems. I mean, simply the fact of of a book like Wildland, which, you know, when I started writing it six years ago, I have to tell you, I was almost a little bit kind of self-conscious about telling friends that I was writing a book about this kind of crisis of empathy in America, this inability to understand how my actions were influencing your life, those kinds of things. And actually today, in the wake of a year of protests against racial injustice by, you know, people of all kinds of different descriptions, not just black Americans, but people who really sort of came to say, I am appalled that this country is treating people this way, that that kind of recognition is part of the process of this pendulum beginning to swing more towards this recognition that we have a collective ethic or at least a collective responsibility. And that gives me reasons for for optimism. Well, on that somewhat more optimistic note than your last <laughs> dismal analysis, this um, is a this is part of my role on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, the sunny, fine. the sunny personality. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, I'll stick with the darkness in Wildland. But I, mean, uh, I want to thank you. It's a great read. The book is Wildland: The Making of America's Fury. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to all three of you. That was fun. 